Another scream echoed down the halls to where Octavius sat in his father's study, pacing impatiently. I have to go, he muttered to his secretary, edging fitfully towards the door. I'm sure your wife will understand, master, said the secretary in what he hoped was a soothing tone. There's no way of knowing how much longer it will be. You could go, hear the debate and come back and things could still be the same. Another scream, almost a groan all mixed up with a long cry of pain, bounced off the walls and sank into the air around Octavius. If it was normal business, I wouldn't worry about it, said Octavius for the tenth time that morning. But Cicero is insisting that he's uncovered this great conspiracy and the whole place is in uproar. He's threatening to execute senators without trial. It's all a great big mess. I'm sure your wife will understand how important it is, Master, said the secretary again, working to keep any sense of weariness out of his voice. There was another scream. Octavius marched out of his father's study and into the atrium and started towards the front door of the house. But then he paused. He stood next to the pool and turned back and forth several times, now to the front door, now to the courtyard, and behind it the bedrooms. Another scream floated across the warm air of the courtyard towards them. "'I'll just go and see, you know, how it's going,' said Octavius, turning around and starting to move towards the courtyard. "'What do you mean, Master?' asked his secretary in alarm. "'There are no men on that side of the house today.' "'Well, you never know. There might be one any minute now,' said Octavius, trying to sound light-hearted. But it went right over his secretary's head. "'I won't go in. I'll just... just... see what's going on,' he said vaguely, and hurried across the courtyard and down the corridor to the bedrooms before he could change his mind. Artia was not where he expected her to be, in their own bedrooms, but her screams guided him even further into the house, to a tiny room near the slaves' quarters.' He wondered why on earth they had moved her in there, but decided the less he knew about the whole process, the better. He was close enough now to hear words in the screams. Mostly it was repeated cries of, I can't do it, I can't do it, and at one point, alarmingly, I think it's stopping, I'm fine, really, it's not going to be today, I'm going to go and get a cup of wine. Thankfully, he could hear the midwife firmly putting a stop to that idea. Octavius pressed himself against the wall of the corridor with the idea that as soon as a slave girl came past to get towels or hot water or something, weren't those the usual requirements, he would stop her and ask her what was going on and how long she thought it was likely to take. The screams had started again, even louder and longer now. The midwife seemed to be ordering Artia to do something over and over again, but he wasn't sure what. Then suddenly, and quite clearly, he heard Artia yelling for all she was worth, I'm tearing apart, everything's coming apart, I can see my guts floating up to the stars and spreading themselves over the entire earth and the heavens. For a moment he was really worried, but then he heard the reassuring voice of the midwife saying something in soothing tones and decided it was probably alright. It's an omen, he heard one of the slave girls whisper as they hovered by the door of the room. An omen of what? That she's going to die? asked another. Don't be so literal, said the first. It's an omen that the baby will come out of her and rule over the whole world and the heavens above. The second slave girl laughed. Well, if you say so, she said. Though I doubt too many babies born in teensy little back bedrooms are going to do that. At that point, the midwife called them back. It sounded as if things were happening. Octavius decided to go back to wait in his father's study. If the Senate were making history, they would have to do it without him, at least for another half an hour. 
He wondered briefly as he walked back down the hall whether the superstitious slave girl might be right. Of course not, he told himself, don't be ridiculous. But as he crossed the courtyard and passed a small statue of Apollo in the garden, he had a sudden strange conviction that not only would the slave girl's prediction turn out to be right, but that he would not live to see it, not from this world at least. He found himself almost shaking and paused for a moment to catch his breath, but he could see his secretary waiting for him, and he pulled himself upright and carried on. Even so, although his bedroom was too far away to hear the baby boy's cries from his little nursery, Octavius wouldn't sleep that night. "'You are the man of the house now, Gaius Octavius Thurinus,' said the little boy's nurse solemnly. "'So you must be a big, brave boy and sleep alone at night.' "'But it's scary,' protested the four-year-old, clutching his favourite blanket. "'I don't like it here. It's dark and it's cold. It's not as nice as my other bedroom. I want to go home.' "'Nonsense,' said the nurse as harshly as she dared. You were born in this room, you know, so you are hardly going to come to any harm from sleeping here. You are a big, grown-up boy, and you will be fine. And with that, she shut the door and left the little boy, still wearing his black tunic from his father's funeral, sitting alone on the bed in the tiny room, clutching and chewing at his blanket. Thurinus stared at the doorway in the darkness. The room was tiny, much smaller than his room at their house in Rome. The walls felt like they were too close and it made him feel stuck, like an animal trapped in a cage. There was one tiny window high up on the wall and only the smallest sliver of moonlight could get through to him. At first everything just looked black, but then he realised he could almost see shapes in the darkness. The doorway, the table, the outline of the bed frame. He cried, not loudly for someone to come, but quietly because he missed his daddy. Salty tears fell on the blanket and made it wet and scratchy, but he carried on holding it tight anyway. He curled up on the bed against the wall and was almost falling asleep when suddenly he was thrown violently out of the bed. He landed hard on the floor, tangled in his blanket. Of course, little Thurinus cried out and began to wail. His mother and his nurse heard the commotion and came to check on him but when he told them what had happened, they wouldn't believe him. "'Don't tell stories, Thurinus,' said his mother sternly. "'Listen to your mother, child,' said his nurse. "'You remember what Aesop said about the boy who cried wolf?' "'Not a wolf,' pleaded Thurinus. "'I don't know what. Something pushed me out of bed.' But neither woman wanted to hear it, and they told him good night and firmly shut the door. Thurinus lay back down in his bed and stared at the ceiling for a while. It was even more difficult to sleep in that room now, but he knew he had to try, so he closed his eyes tight and pulled his blanket over his head. It was almost working when, once again, suddenly, with no warning, he was lifted up and thrown out of the bed. Felt like half a dozen invisible hands had grabbed him and were flinging him to the floor, his blanket tangled around his legs. Thurinus burst into tears, but this time no one came. He shouted and screamed and threw himself at the door, but nothing. Terrified, he crawled under the bed, clinging to his blanket and squeezed his eyes tight shut. After a little while, he felt movement above him. 
It was like a wind sweeping across the room, but he huddled as tight as he could against the wall underneath the bed, holding his blanket in front of him like a shield. As his eyes got used to the darkness, he started to see shapes moving about in the gloom. It was men's feet, feet poking out from the bottom of togas, at least three pairs of them, and a woman's feet as well, wearing jewelled sandals under a rich red dress. He watched them move to and fro around the room, letting the pitter-patter of their crisscrossing footsteps lull him into a sense of rhythmic relaxation, and then... a head appeared, on the floor, staring straight at him. It was not attached to a body. Two hands fell from above and flopped either side of it, their bloody stumps showing where they had been removed from their arms. There you are, said the head. The little boy who finally brought me down. Many others tried, but only you little brat succeeded. Don't let him take all the credit, cried a booming voice from above. Thurinus saw another pair of men's feet stop and stand facing towards the head. It was me did this to you, you bleating little weasel. Don't pin this on the boy. The owner of the feet then leant down to peer at Thurinus under the bed. His head remained reassuringly attached to his body, though a stream of blood was running down his leg. You did for me, though, didn't you, you little squirt, he said. Rather, your mate Agrippa did. After Hirschus and Panzer, you lost the taste for doing your dirty work yourself. Two more pairs of feet paused to join the crowd in front of the bed, but their owners remained standing. Tears streamed down Thurinus' face, but he didn't cry out anymore. He didn't know why these men were hounding him, but as long as he stayed pressed against the wall under the bed, his blanket in front of him, it seemed like they were too lazy to reach right under and get him. He was afraid that if he screamed or cried, they wouldn't like the noise and they would reach right under and grab him again. The woman heard his muffled snuffling, though. She shoved the disembodied head and hands roughly out of the way and lay herself down on the floor alongside the bed to stare right into Thurinus' face. She was horribly thin and bony and her face was gaunt and grey. Is this why you couldn't be a better father to me, Papa? she asked plaintively. Was it because your father died? You don't know how to be a father. Is that why you sent me away? He killed me, you know, your stepson. He stopped sending me food and left me to starve. He did what you wanted to do, but couldn't quite manage. Her bony hand started to inch forward, creeping along the floor like a spider, moving under the bed, reaching for Thurinus' blanket. A new foot appeared. It was covered in blood, shining red and sticky, but somehow the bloodstains seemed to glow and empower it. It kicked the woman's hand away and came to stand between Thurinus and the milling, pacing feet. "'Too scared to confront my grown son, are you? You had to come and torment a little boy,' it sneered with contempt. "'Daddy,' said Thurinus quietly, not daring to hope. But when the glossy, red-covered toga moved downwards and the blood-spattered face, still attached to the neck, good, looked in towards him, it wasn't Thurinus' daddy. Weirdly, it looked a lot like his great-uncle Julius. "'I'm not your daddy, son,' said the face of Uncle Julius. "'Your daddy loves you very much, but he can't reach you from where he is. "'These people,' and he swept his arm up towards the owners of the feet, "'these people will be very angry with you one day, "'but by then you will be too powerful for them. "'So the cowards have come here to torture you instead.' I am your second father. 
and I am more powerful than any of them. And with that, with one more sweep of his arm, he emptied the room, of himself as well as the wretched pacing feet. Thurinus stayed where he was all night, and when his nurse found him in the morning, he told her everything. She said it was just a nightmare. Uncle Julius said they were mad at me, said the boy. Yes, dear, said his nurse. That sort of thing often happens in bad dreams. I'm mad at them now, said the boy. Of course, dear, said his nurse absent-mindedly. Really mad at them, said the boy. The nurse nodded. One day I'll hurt them, said Thurinus, remembering the torn wrists, the bloody legs, the bony hand. That's nice, dear, said his nurse, not listening. And this was the Divine Emperor Augustus Nursery when he was very young, said the enslaved housekeeper Marcus had inherited along with the house when he bought it, whose name was Melissa. Back then he was known as Thurinus because his father won a victory over runaway slaves near Thurii. My parents and grandparents have all been slaves of this house. We know all its old quirks and traditions, she added proudly. If you do a good job, I'll free you and you can run the household as my freedwoman, said Marcus absent-mindedly as he poked around the tiny room. Melissa betrayed no outward sign of emotion at this. Inwardly, her heart skipped a beat, and she watched her new master intently, trying to assess how honest he seemed to be. "'What has the room been used for lately?' asked Marcus. "'Mostly we show people around it,' said Melissa. "'They pay a few coins, and we usually make sure there's a child's bed and a few toys placed in here. "'Normally, everyone who enters carries out a ritual purification first, to appease the spirit of the divine Augustus.' "'Really?' said Marcus. "'How extraordinary!' I haven't heard of anyone doing that around the imperial palaces in Rome. Anyone who doesn't finds themselves shuddering and seized with terror, said Melissa, shivering a little to prove her point. No one has spent the night here in years for fear of the spirits that haunt this place. It's where the Divine Augustus was born, you know. The Divine Augustus was born at the Oxheads on the Palatine Hill in Rome, said Marcus, and Melissa bit her lip and fought the urge to correct him. This room is a bit small, but it would make a decent guest room for a guest planning a short stay. We can still allow the curious to come and look around it when it's not otherwise in use. Yes, master, said Melissa. You're not convinced, are you, said Marcus, a bit surprised as the woman had not so far seemed to be the superstitious type. Melissa remained silent for a moment, racking her brains for a safe reply. I'll tell you what, said Marcus, before she had managed to come up with anything. I'll sleep in here tonight. Then you'll see that there's no reason this shouldn't be used as a guest room. I have a lot of relatives wanting to come and see this place. If you start telling them the Divine Augustus was actually born here, they'll be even more desperate to stay the night. Yes, Master, said Melissa. Will you be carrying out the ritual purification before going to bed? Marcus rolled his eyes. Yes, yes, I will, if it will make you feel better, he said. Marcus had the house slaves set up a small folding bed in the tiny former nursery so he could sleep there that night. It really was very small, but he was committed to the idea of using it as a guest room now and too determined to back down. Before going to bed, he carried out a brief purification ritual. Melissa still seemed nervous as she checked everything was in order before going to bed herself, but the ritual seemed to offer some reassurance at least. Rolling his eyes at the silly superstitions of slaves and women, slave women being therefore the most superstitious of all, Marcus made himself as comfortable as possible on the rough camp bed and closed his eyes to sleep.
He had a sensation as if several pairs of hands were pulling at him, and he was thrown out of bed along with all his bedclothes. Marcus raised his head from where he now lay on the floor by the door. He was utterly baffled. He could only imagine that he'd had some kind of nightmare and thrown himself out of bed in a panic at something in the dream. He could still feel the imprint of the invisible hands on his body, but that must surely be his imagination. He clambered back into bed and went back to sleep. It happened again. Again, the feeling of multiple pairs of hands grabbing at him. Again, he was thrown right across the room to land in a heap at the front of the door, tangled up in his own bedclothes. Marcus shook himself, gathered up the bedsheets, and stood. He shuddered as if someone was walking over his tomb. But he was convinced he must just be having violent nightmares, so he made up the bed again and got back in, and closed his eyes tight to try to go back to sleep. It happened again. Invisible hands grabbing at him, angry voices, mostly male, one female, a wet feeling on some of the parts of his body they were touching, a sensation of being hurled across the tiny room, the impact of his body hitting the door, the bedclothes landing on his face, suffocating him. He pulled frantically at them, straining to see past the rough wall in the dark. He could just make out shapes in the gloom, people walking about, into and through, through each other, in the cramped space. I, I did the ritual, he blurted out desperately. The purification ritual. He heard a woman's laughter coming from somewhere. Oh yes, he was always very keen on purification. The laughter went on and on with the hard edge of laughter that's only a heartbeat away from desperate, angry tears. It's not you that needs purified, said a booming male voice. You are just in, and here Marcus felt someone kick him hard in the guts, the way. Marcus curled himself into a ball around his aching belly and listened to the rustling sound of people moving around and around in tiny circles. Something stirred in his hair as it poked out from under the bedclothes, and he realised a wind was whipping up and swirling around the room. There were no draughts, and he had no idea where it was coming from, but it seemed to sweep the bustling feet and stalking shadows away. Marcus thought perhaps it was some guardian spirit come to rescue him, but it continued to swirl around him, a cold, biting wind prickling and niggling and picking at him. At one point he thought he heard a voice whisper, Why make me a god and then invade my home? And then the wind got even stronger. This went on for the rest of the night. Marcus pulled the bedclothes over his head, buried his face in his hands, and pressed himself against the door. That was how Melissa found him the next morning, half dead in front of the door, tangled up in his bedspread, moaning and muttering and shivering. Shut up that room, he said hoarsely. Should we let visitors look at it, Master? asked Melissa. Let them if they want to, Marcus replied, but tell them they enter that room at their own risk. I will never set foot in here again. The end. Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval, and early modern ghost stories. I'm Juliet Harrison, uh, and I am a lecturer in history at Newman University in the UK. So this story comes from uh, Suetonius, Life of the Divine Augustus. I've made up a lot of it because the the story, such as it is in Suetonius, is very, very brief. 
Um, basically, I've taken an omen from Suetonius for the first part. I've taken a ghost story relating to the Emperor Augustus's nursery for the last part. And I've essentially made up the middle part um, because uh, it is really a, a very brief um, couple of lines in Suetonius. So I had to get very inventive. Um, I basically took inspiration from the fact that this is a story revolving around Emperor Augustus, um, who is a really fascinating person. I mean, that sounds a bit obvious, I guess, but it's true. Um, he, he was born during a period of civil war. Um, an awful lot of the people around him got murdered, some of them by him, uh, or on his orders. At 18, he was made the heir of Julius Caesar when Caesar was uh, assassinated. He was Caesar's great-nephew. Caesar actually adopted Augustus in his will after he died, which is weird. <laughs> That's not a normal thing for a Roman to do, by any means. Um, but uh, Augustus then came over and, and claimed his inheritance, fought some more civil wars, and eventually came out as the first emperor. And he created, essentially... Um, the empire in the sense of the, the monarchy that ran it. Uh, the Roman Republic had already conquered a lot of other places, so empire in the sense of having conquered a bunch of other places already existed. But empire in the sense of having an emperor. <laughs> and in fact, the very word emperor, imperator, uh, is Augustus's invention. Julius Caesar was killed when people thought he seemed to be trying to be a king. They didn't like kings in ancient Rome. Augustus never called himself king. Nor did Caesar, but he came a lot closer. Um, he called himself Imperator, um, person with the power. <laughs> he avoided the title king, and that's essentially where we get the title emperor from. He's incredibly clever. He was married to the same woman, his third wife, for about 50 years, which is also quite impressive in ancient Rome. Um, he ruled for oh, 40-something years. Um died, as far as we know, of natural causes. I mean, unless you read Robert Graves' novel like Claudius or the t watch the TV show, but uh, as far as we know from actual history, died of natural causes. Um, basically, Rome suffered almost 100 years of civil wars with people killing each other and killing each other and killing each other, and he's the one who came out on top. And I think he's he's just a fascinating character, and I really wanted to draw on that in the story, which is why, because this is a story set around his nursery his childhood nursery, I thought it would be really interesting to use the story to look at the contrast between Augustus the child and Augustus the emperor. Now I should say at this point he had more names in his lifetime than a character in a Russian novel. So when he was born he was called Gaius Octavius after his father which is a typical Roman naming. According to Suetonius when he was young he was nicknamed Thurinus. Uh, for the reason I gave in the story, something to do with his father having won a victory near Thurii. Then, when he was adopted in Caesar's will, he became Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. And at this point, he's usually referred to by historians, by modern historians, as Octavian, um, as a way of separating him from his father and from Caesar. Now, he referred to himself from that point on as Caesar, uh, from the point of his adoption. Augustus had himself referred to as Caesar, um, but we modern historians tend to call Julius Caesar Caesar, so we, we call him Octavian to separate him from Julius Caesar. 
Then in 27 BCE, he took the name Augustus. He had the Senate vote him this name. It has religious connotations of being almost divine, not quite completely divine. He's had Julius Caesar made a god by this point. Um, he was worshipped as a god in his lifetime in the outer areas uh, of the empire, but not within the city of Rome because the Senate wouldn't like that. So it gives him these kind of almost religious connotations. It relates to the English word august um, with this sort of sense of, of power and sacredness. Uh, and he is then known as Augustus or Augustus Caesar from that point on. And I actually wanted to make use of this Again, because I'm really interested in the contrast between, you know, the four-year-old little boy, he's from a well-off family, he's a member of Rome's elite, but he's not from a family, well, his mother is a Julian, um, his father's family are not as fancy as the Julians. Um, he, so he's well-off, he's elite, but he's not the top of Roman society. Suetonius describes his nursery as being so small it looks like a pantry. So he's... He, the lower part of the upper classes. But he's also a four-year-old boy whose father's just died. And I'm really interested in exploring that contrast between this, this little boy who doesn't appear to be any different from any other little boys in the Roman elite and then this man who at the age of 18 is going to essentially decide pretty much he's going to become emperor of the world and then he does. Uh, I think he's far more impressive than Alexander the Great, who um, left an absolute mess after he either drank himself to death or died of syphilis at the age of 33. Left a gigantic mess and everything fell apart, whereas Augustus reigned for much longer and created an empire that lasted about 400 years. 500 years. Um, so... I think he's far more impressive, but with that comes extreme darkness. A lot of people died because of Augustus, either directly or indirectly. There's a lot of blood on his hands. And that's what I really wanted to explore with that middle section of the story and with my invention of what it is in that room, which also Suetonius says is that um, the, the new owner who tried out sleeping in there to see what would happen ended up uh, half dead by the door the next morning. I've also assumed that Octavius, who we don't know much about because he died when Augustus was four, uh, was a reasonably affectionate and involved father. Uh, Suetonius says that he was late to hear the conspiracy of Catiline brought before the Senate. This was a huge deal during Cicero's consulship. Um, Cicero put down this conspiracy. Catiline ended up dying after a battle. Cicero executed several senators without trial, including Mark Antony's stepfather leading to uh, deep enmity between Cicero and Mark Antony. Um, so it was a huge deal. And Octavius was late to come and hear this brought before the Senate because his wife Artia was in labour with Augustus. So I have assumed from this that he was a reasonably affectionate and involved father, <laughs> as Roman fathers go. Um, the tradition in Rome would be that there would be no men involved in the, the childbirth itself. But clearly... Uh, we know from that story that it was normal for men to be in the home, <laughs> to be there. For all we know, maybe some of them did enter the, the room where the baby was being born. Um, I have assumed that he wouldn't actually go in until the baby was 
was born, he wouldn't go in while the woman was in labour. He'd leave that to the midwives, but he obviously doesn't want to leave the house. He obviously is concerned about what's happening to his wife and about the birth of the baby, which is comforting to know, to be honest. And incidentally, if you've never been uh, intimately involved in the birth of a child, uh, the mother telling everyone it's not happening and she's going home is something that actually sometimes happens at a certain stage of, of labour um, to, to some women. Aesop's fables actually dates back to the 5th century BCE uh, and they were translated into Latin, including by a freedman of Augustus, as well as read in Greek. So that's why I've got the story of the boy who cried wolf uh, mentioned in there, because that story is centuries older than Augustus um, and uh, he would have known it. Suetonius actually says Augustus was born at the ox heads on the Palatine Hill in Rome and that there was a shrine there um, to Augustus. Uh, who, of course, was made a god after his death, like Julius Caesar before him. And that's why in the story I've given Julius Caesar and then later Augustus himself this power over the other ghosts because they have been made gods by the Senate. And in the way my story works, that has sort of given them a little bit more power than the average ghost from the sheer kind of belief and worship that they're getting from other people. So there was a shrine uh, to Augustus in his, his birthplace on the Palatine. But Suetonius also says that uh, the locals uh, at his grandfather's house near Velatri, not far away, think he was born in this nursery. This was his nursery in his grandfather's house when he was a child. And he says local tradition is that he was born there. So I've basically assumed that that is where he was born, um, but that uh, the snobs in Rome don't believe the locals and the slaves and therefore they've become convinced he was born somewhere else. <laughs> the pool in the atrium, by the way, is the impluvium, which would be um, a pool. There'd be an open hole in the roof of the, the atrium in a Roman villa. Rainwater would be allowed to fall in into a pool called the impluvium. So that's why Octavius is standing next to a pool as he's trying to work out whether to go to the Senate or not. So I included this scene of Augustus being born, partly um, because there's this story that he may have been born in that nursery and it ties him very, very intimately to that room because my story's moving through three different time periods. Um, I thought going with the idea that he was born there um, keeps sort of explains why his spirit would be so closely tied to this room. But I also included one of the omens that Suetonius records. But Suetonius really likes to record a bunch of omens that foretold each emperor's reign, even the emperors that only last a couple of months. Suetonius, as a person, was really into this stuff. Um, we have letters between him, well, we have letters from Pliny the Younger to Suetonius, and we can guess the content of Suetonius's letter from it, um, where he's written to Pliny asking how much he should be worried about a dream, and Pliny takes this very seriously and gives him some advice. And he, he just loves omens and recording omens. So he has loads of omens foretelling each emperor's reign, uh, and especially, of course, for Augustus. There's a story about Artia being impregnated by Apollo in the form of a snake. That is blatantly lifted from Alexander the Great, from almost exactly the same story around Alexander the Great. Uh, in Alexander's case, it's Zeus rather than Apollo. It's pretty much the same story. This one may even have been spread about by Augustus during his lifetime, because Augustus really liked comparing himself to Alexander the Great. Um, he had his statues made to almost look a little bit like Alexander the Great. So if I had to guess, I'd say that one was probably invented by Augustus himself while he was alive. 
So I've taken one of the other omens, where Suetonius says that Artia dreamed before giving birth that her guts were taken up to the stars and spread over land and sea. Um, and instead of having it be a dream, I have made that about um, childbirth, partly to tie it to the nursery um, and partly on the assumption that this is kind of, it's something that I can imagine she could have said while giving birth as a result of pain and the sensations going on at the time. Um, I don't think the Romans had pethidine. Uh, but maybe they had something else that they gave to mothers in labour. If it had the same effect as pethidine, you can say all sorts of things. Um, so I've I've taken that dream and I've put it kind of during the birth, uh, just to kind of tie it all together a bit more. But that is one of the omens Suetonius does record around um, the birth of Augustus and uh, something that supposedly foretold his future power. And then the key part of the story is this story about um, there being this force in there that nobody sleeps in there and that this new owner bought the house, decided to test the theory um, and ended up flung out of bed and lying in a, a pile uh, by the door. Um, Suetonius doesn't name the new owner. Um, I called him Marcus because it's a very, very common name. And this is a joke from an old British sitcom where one of the British characters in ancient Roman Britain says they're all called Marcus, aren't they? And there's some truth to that. So I just gave him that standard name. Now it's not clear whether this is a ghost or something else and that's true of many many ancient ghost stories. Um, whether it's a, a ghost, a, a daimon, a spirit that's somewhere between gods and mortals of some kind, a, a monster, it, exactly what this is is extremely unclear. P.G. Maxwell Stewart has identified it as a poltergeist um, because of the, the physical activity of throwing somebody out of bed with their bedclothes. I have to confess, I've never been that keen on poltergeist stories. They're just not, not my bag, really. Um, I don't know why. It's just a personal taste. Uh, whether this is a poltergeist or not depends partly on how you're defining a poltergeist. It's not attached to a particular person in the way that uh, 20th century poltergeist stories often are. But it is throwing people around. So if you define a poltergeist as just you know, a, a, a ghost or an unseen spirit even that is throwing things around and causing a mess, uh, then that would make sense. Yulia Doroshevska connects it with liminal spaces and calls it a suburban legend. Um, <clears throat> she talks about kind of spirits and diamonds and various things and relates it to this idea of legends in the suburbs around ancient cities, around Rome and other towns, um, of these liminal spaces between civilization and outside of civilization. Um, in ancient, in the ancient Roman world, bodies were buried outside of the city. And that would be true of if you were in a suburb as well, but if you are, you know, the more you are between city and countryside, the more you're kind of in this liminal space. I actually found the, the reference to this story in the first place um, in Emma Southern's book, uh, Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, Whore, uh, where she just mentions it briefly, talking about imperial ghosts, and Emma interprets it as Augustus' ghost uh, himself, because it's his nursery um, that's being haunted, so she interprets it as it's the ghost of Augustus. And because Suetonius also mentions that uh, purification ritual. So that's a detail from Suetonius. Because Augustus had been deified, uh, Suetonius says people did this purification ritual before entering the room to appease the spirit of the god Augustus. 
so Emma suggests it's Augustus's ghost haunting the nursery. Um, Suetonius actually isn't specific uh, about what it is, which is why I then let my imagination run riot a little bit and filled the nursery <laughs> with ghosts, including Augustus's. Um, I have filled Augustus's nursery with the ghosts of several people. Um, I will run through all of the people in a minute, but basically uh, it's several people from Augustus's later life, plus Julius Caesar and Augustus himself. Um, I sort of think of it as a ghost, a ghost with, or several ghosts, um, with physical qualities. Um, the other issue, of course, is that if a famous person is connected to a home in any way, then if there are reports of ghostly activity, the tendency is for people to assume that the ghost must be the famous person. So, for example, if you see a grey lady in Hampton Court, people always assume it's one of Henry VIII's wives, not just any of the hundreds of women who may have lived or worked in Hampton Court for centuries and centuries and centuries. It must be a wife of Henry VIII. Uh, similarly, there's reports of ghostly activity at Kenwood House, which is a uh, London area in England. This particular ghost does nothing but invisibly shut a door. That's it. A door shuts sometimes. And on that basis, people have assumed that the ghost is Dido Elizabeth Bell because she is one of the most famous uh, occupants of the house. She was uh, the mixed-race daughter of one of the lords who lived there. Uh, she was the daughter of the, the lord and uh, a black woman, and she's well known because there are paintings of her with uh, her sister, who's white. Uh, there's a film about her called Belle uh, by Amat Santi, which I thoroughly recommend. But basically, she's one of the most famous inhabitants. Uh, this is from the... she lived in the um, late 18th century. Um, because she's famous, the ghost shutting a door must be her. So I think there's also, you know, some of that going on. It was Augustus's nursery, therefore if there's any ghostly activity, it must have been Augustus. And that's kind of how ghost folklore tends to work, presumably the same in ancient Rome as it is now. So, uh, as I say, I let my imagination run away with me and I filled this very small room with ghosts. What I've done is I've given tiny four-year-old Augustus a parade of his own victims. So. Hopefully this came through in story, otherwise uh, I've not written it clearly enough. Uh, but the idea is that these are people who will be killed by Augustus in the future and who have come back in time, because time doesn't have to mean anything to a ghost. And they are tormenting the four-year-old because during his lifetime he became very powerful and led to their deaths. And then after death, he's been deified. And I say that the kind of way that this story is working is that deification has given his spirit more power. So they can't come at him after death. They can't come at him while he's alive. So they've gone to the four-year-old to torment the child um, because he will in the future lead to their deaths. So the parade of victims uh, consists of uh, speaking parts, Cicero, Mark, Antony and Augustus' daughter, Julia, and the two silent men who don't speak are Hirtius and Panza. So just to run through those, Cicero is the disembodied head and hands. He was executed on the orders of Augustus, or Octavian as he was known at the time, Mark Antony and Lepidus, uh, when they took power um, 
they proscribed hundreds of their enemies, which means uh, the men were killed and their money and property taken. Gave them extra money to wage war. And got rid of their enemies as well. Uh, Mark Antony absolutely loathed Cicero because of the whole killing his stepfather thing, uh, among other things. So uh, Cicero, having his head and hands chopped off and nailed to the rostra where he used to give speeches from, was Mark Antony's doing. Um, Cicero had given a bunch of speeches, well, he'd given one speech and then published the others um, about how awful Mark Antony was, basically. Um, so this was Antony's revenge. Um, but the three of them decided this together. So even if we want to say, as uh, Plutarch says, this was a, a glimpse into the how terrible the soul of Antony was because he was so violent uh, to Cicero's dead body. Um, but uh, Octavian is also one of the three who had this done. I've then got the ghost of Antony uh, arguing with the ghost of Cicero. Um, Antony uh, committed suicide after he was defeated by Augustus, or more technically by Agrippa, Augustus's BFF, at the Battle of Actium uh, in the last of the civil wars, which was uh, technically the civil war was Octavian against Cleopatra. Um, because he declared war on Cleopatra, the foreigner, not Antony, the Roman, in an attempt to make it look not like a civil war. Uh, but it was against Antony and Cleopatra. So Augustus and Agrippa won this naval battle in 31 BCE, and the following year both Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide. So he died because of um, Octavian. Augustus' daughter Julia was exiled for uh, sexual misbehaviour, she was alive when Augustus died, um, but she was then neglected by uh, Tiberius, his successor. Tiberius was both her stepbrother and her husband, and her adoptive brother, because this is how Roman imperial families work. <laughs> Tiberius was the son of Augustus's third wife, Livia. Julia was the daughter of Augustus and his second wife, Scribonia. Uh, Tiberius was also adopted by Augustus uh, later in life and Tiberius and Julia were married to each other uh, but it was not a happy marriage at all and when Tiberius became emperor he neglected her and she died so she is blaming Augustus for exiling her and then leaving her to the mercies of Tiberius and then Hirtius and Panza, the two silent ghosts they were consuls um, when uh, Octavian, as he was at the time, was sent off uh, to fight a battle against Mark Antony. Uh, late Roman history is extremely complicated. Uh, I thoroughly recommend the BBC HBO Rome. It's not entirely accurate, but you'll get the gist. Uh, but basically, before Antony and Octavian got together, <laughs> they were sent off. Uh, Octavian was sent off by the Senate uh, with the consuls here, Shusimhanza, to fight against Antony. And uh, Hirschus and Panza both died. And some of the sources are quite blatant about the fact that it was suspected that Octavian had... Uh, one of them he was suspected of having killed himself in the battle, um, sort of pretending to be mixed up. Uh, and another one uh, died of wounds, and Octavian was suspected of sending his doctor to finish him off. Basically, he's suspected of murdering both of them, one of them possibly personally. As you can tell, normally Augustus's method was to have other people do the dirty work. Um, he tended to sort of keep his hands a little cleaner, blame it on other people, blame it on Antony, for example, in the case of Cicero, 
exile people and then just neglect them, things like that. Um, whereas Hirschis and Panza, they're the first victims and he seems to have had a somewhat more direct role. Either that or they just both coincidentally died in the battle, but that's an awfully big coincidence considering Octavian then took the armies back to Rome and demanded to be made consul in their place. So hopefully that story sort of ties together some of the themes of Augustus's life. Uh, the darkness and the bloodshed of how he became emperor, but then he gets himself deified, he's very popular, and he did bring an end to the civil wars. He took a lot of credit for bringing an end to the civil wars. He did it by killing everybody else. And I think that's what I really wanted to highlight, or by making sure everyone else was dead. Um, and that disconnect between the deification, the peaceful reign, the bloodshed in order to get there, and his not exactly humble beginnings, honestly, they weren't that humble. His nursery was small, it wasn't a stable or anything. Um, but his relatively humble beginnings compared to Julius Caesar. Um, kind of bringing all those different things together um, and sort of highlighting the innocent child against um, how dark his life is going to get. So this story is from Suetonius' Life of Augustus or Divine Augustus or Life of the Divine Augustus, uh, his biography of the Emperor Augustus, uh, section 6 and 94. Uh, section 6 is um, the bit with the ghost story about the nursery and 94 is the omens. Uh, you can read this for free online several different places. I usually use Lacus Curtius, uh, which is the name of a website uh, run by Bill Thayer with loads and loads of translations of ancient sources. It's also on perseus.tufts.edu. Uh, you can get good print translations from Penguin or from Oxford World Classics. Robert Graves' translation is quite a good one. Obviously, Robert Graves wrote the novel I, Claudius, um, which takes a lot. I mean, he claimed it was more inspired by Tacitus, but there's a lot of Suetonius in I, Claudius. So thanks to Emma Southern's Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, Whore, which alerted me to the existence of this story in the first place because I read Suetonius 20 years ago and I had forgotten about it. Um, this book is known as Agrippina, the most extraordinary woman of the Roman world in some places. I think in America that's the title it's known by. Um, presumably they didn't want the word whore in it. Um, but either one, uh, same book, either way. Which is a really good biography of Agrippina the Younger, the mother of the Emperor Nero. Um, I've also had a look at P.G. Maxwell Stewart's Poltergeists, A History of Violent Ghost Phenomena. Um, he also translates this section about the nursery with a good modern translation uh, rather than the kind of more old-fashioned online ones. Uh, and on the English heritage ghosts, including uh, the ghost assumed to be Dido Elizabeth Bell at Kenwood, um, this is from a book called Eight Ghosts, the English Heritage Book of New Ghost Stories. Now, most of these are fictional stories set at English heritage sites, edited by Rowan Ralph. Uh, but there is a gazetteer at the back of... Um, Imagine me doing inverted commas, real uh, ghost stories around English heritage sites. Um, so the story about uh, Kenwood is from the Gazetteer at the back of that book. I also used an article from JSTOR, if you have access to journals on JSTOR, um, which is Yulia Zoroshevska's article, The Liminal Space, Suburbs as a Demonic Domain in Classical Literature in Preternature, Volume 6, Number 1. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, I will be back next month um, with 
possibly a Christmas themed ghost story if I can track down the primary sources for one. But I will be back with something in the month of December, um, whether it's Christmassy or not. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. <laughs>